Welcome back, my friends, to another episode of the Shema podcast. I wanted to tackle something with you guys. One of the things I recognized recently was that now that I've been living in a community for several years, a lot of the way I live my life has been so normalized that I had to stop and look back and think about what Dan Coleman, 12 years ago, before he ever met a Torah observant Jew, what he would find strange. And what he would find so different and odd to what the world was like that I was living in before. And I want to address those with you and provide some clarity on how an Orthodox Jew lives their life. But here's something you need to understand. We all want to be normal. Nobody wants to be an oddball, an extremist. We all want to be normal. But when you look at the outside world and you look at what is considered normal behavior, you know, in the the first two standard deviations of that bell curve, for the outside world, that normal behavior is shifting all the time. I mean, I just think back to the 80s when I was a teenager, what was inside that bell curve distribution of normal behavior is totally different than what is inside that bell curve distribution of what is normal behavior today. But with the Orthodox Jew, it's been the same set of behaviors for over 3,300 years. We have to remember that what is normal behavior is what is popular. It doesn't mean it's rational. It just means it's what's popular. And what I've learned and loved so much about living this lifestyle, and as I've approached it and learned about it, was that it's all based off reason. It's all rational because it's all based off Torah. And that's why it is so consistent at all times. And whenever I see the Jewish people saying, well, we want to be like everyone else, we want to be liked. And they do things differently. My friends, it always goes awry. It never works out. And when you stop and look back at history, a lot of the positions you have now, I'm sure you would look back and say, hey, I don't care if I was living back then, that was wrong. You know, I think back to the normalization of slavery in this country 100 years ago. You go back, you know, over a thousand years ago in Rome, the norm was that an adult man would introduce a young boy into sexuality. That was the norm. Now, we look back at it and say, that's absurd. Thank God, because Torah has always told us that's absolutely evil and insane, but it's constantly shifting. So I wanted to bring on someone to talk about all these topics, the ones that I know have popped up in your head, but you thought, I don't want to ask my rabbi that. That might be considered disrespectful or taboo. I want to address all those things, my friends. So I brought on a guest I have not had on before. The Rabbits and Trep, you know, the Trep family is a pillar of our community here in Houston and in Austin. And I've been wanting to get her and her husband on, although I was told when I asked Rabbi Ari Wolby about getting Rabbi Trep on, he said, good luck trying to get him to sit still for a one hour podcast. But when I said, how about a Rebitson? He said, Rebitson Trep is the one to really discuss this with you. So I'm looking forward to bring her on and discussing many of these topics and many of the questions that I'm sure you have. Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories, as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars, demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. 
For more great TOR learning through TORCH, the TOR Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Rabbits and Trout, thank you for joining us. Okay, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. All right, fantastic. So you heard how I sort of set things up. You know, it's our lifestyle. I've only been here two years, but it's so normal to me now. And I forget that you know, we're trying to reach out to Jews that like the Dan Coleman's 12 years ago. And there's so much that it seems so strange. I'm going to give you an example of what made me think about doing this, this subject. I was on a, a work Zoom call with many colleagues and I told them I had gone to a bar mitzvah the night before. And they said, that sounds great. What, so what are you guys, you know, what happens at a bar mitzvah? And I was like, well, you know, lots of speeches. We ate, there was lots of dancing. And someone said, fantastic. You probably owed your wife out for a night of dancing. And I stopped and thought and decided to say, yeah. (laughs) Because I remember like 12 years ago, if someone had said like what guys, what couples did was they went out for a night of dancing. That was uh, the romantic way of spending time together. When I was dating Shauna, she always wanted to go out dancing. And quite frankly, I hated it. I was so excited when I found out men and women are supposed to do that. I was like, yes, because that was like the worst thing I had to endure. But I didn't say anything to them. For one, they weren't Jewish. It didn't matter. But for a Jew, it's just like in the outside world, that's that's strange. Like you picture men dancing, you're picturing discotheque with leather chaps. It's like you don't see that we're enjoying and, and celebrating together that way. And, and men and women don't do that. So I realized like there's a lot there that we need to sort of tear down and explain to people so they feel comfortable as they, you know, embrace Torah observance. So let's start with this, the big one. Why can't women be rabbis? Such, is so sexist. Such a great, such a great question. Okay. So when Dr. Coleman to be, asked me to be on the podcast like a month ago, I was so excited. It's actually my first time being on a podcast. And then two weeks ago, he told me the topic and he wants to speak, wanted to speak about women's issues in Judaism. And so many actually thoughts went through my mind, like, because actually I grew up religious. I went to Basiakov. I grew up in Borough Park, New York. But as I grew up, I struggled with many things as a Jewish woman. And I was wondering if I should be straightforward or, you know, just give all the answers, like the correct answers. I decided I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to be vulnerable and I'm going to be honest about my struggles and my amazing beauty that I found as being a Jewish woman. So for tackling the first question, I like to look at a woman is woman's issues in Judaism as an iceberg. And when we we see an iceberg. What do we see? We see the tip of the iceberg on the outside above the water. And underneath, there's a massive, massive piece of ice that we cannot see unless we go down, we search, and we figure out how to see it. But it takes a lot of searching, questioning, being unhappy with answers till we get there. And I was I was thinking about what is like what is underneath there? And it was interesting, actually, just this Friday, an old student of mine called me up and she's like, I have the greatest news for you. And I figured she'll probably tell me that she's pregnant. And of course she did. And she's like, I'm pregnant. And what happened was she had gone to the mikvah for the first time after her wedding, right after Yom Kippur. She got married and she didn't go to the mikvah for a couple of years. And she decided she wants to start a family and she wants to go to the mikvah. It will be very, very special. So she went to the mikvah 
on Yom Kippur, and then she became pregnant right after. And when we're discussing what it means to be a woman, what is a woman's role? And she said something so profound to me, and it was so perfect. And she said, I view a woman as a giver of life. A giver of life could be physical. You know, women can conceive, a woman gives birth. Only a woman can do that, period. But a woman is also a giver of life in a spiritual way. Women give life. Women are intuitive. So whether a woman is a mother or not a mother, a woman's essence is to give, it's to give life. And we see that as Chava. Chava was the first woman ever. What does it say? Chava, aim kol chai, the mother of all living things. The first woman to be in this world, her name, a name is an essence. Her essence is mother of all living things because that, and that is the essence that is passed down to all women. All of us are mothers of, of living things. We're all givers of life, either in a physical or a spiritual way. So it's so important to, to know that is under the iceberg, under all these questions, underneath that is who we are, it's our essence. So the hardest question actually is why a woman can't be a rabbi? And it's such a great question, and it's actually a question I've struggled with for a while. And honestly, on a superficial level, my husband's a rabbi, and I think I can't, I would never be able to honestly balance the home, take care of my kids and be a rabbi with all the responsibilities. But delving deeper, why is it that a woman can't be a rabbi? Because technically a woman could be single and be a rabbi, or technically the husband could be a stay-at-home dad. Why can't a woman be rabbi? So there's a big movement out there of women wanting to become rabbis. And the RCA said no, and I think the Orthodox Union also said no, women can't be rabbi. What's the RCA? The uh, Rabbinical Council of America. Okay. And the OU is the Orthodox Union. Gotcha. So they both, and they both said that women can't be rabbis. And the reason that they gave is Misora. Misora is tradition. Traditionally, women have never been rabbis. And I heard this answer, and I sat with this answer, but I have to admit, I struggled with this answer because... We've got many, many things we follow tradition, but many things we veered away from tradition. For example, just was it 100 or 150 years ago, we had Sarah Schneerer. We had women did not learn. Men went to school and women stayed at home. And Sarah Schneerer started this movement of women going to school. She was a single woman. She was divorced. And she saw that all the girls were, were forgetting what it means to be a Jew, were, weren't understanding the Torah were veering off the path. So what did she do? She said, you know what? I'm going to start a school. I'm going to do something no one has ever done in the past. I'm going to start a girl's school. It was unheard of, unheard of. And she went to rabbi after rabbi after rabbi. And they all said, no, no, we're not going to start a school. This is not the tradition. We're not going to start a school. Men go to school. The women don't go to school. They don't learn Torah like this. She got Haskama from one rabbi. The first rabbi to give her the Haskama was the Belzer Rebbe. And she started it. And she started the school. And it grew. And it grew. And women. And it started with girls. Girls came and they wanted to learn. They soaked in the Torah. They wanted to learn more and more and more. And it grew and it grew. And it got a thousand students. And it was growing. And more rabbis said, yes, I stamp this. I give my approval onto this. Girls should go to school. Girls should learn Torah. Until today, now in America and all over the world, there are girls' schools, there are Beisiakos, and all different names of girls' schools where girls learn Torah. That is part of the traditions. Girls, just like boys, girls learn Torah too. And that was something that Sarah Schneerer changed. And it was difficult. It was challenging. So when I compare that story with Sarah Schneerer and women wanting to become rabbis, I try, I'm trying to ask myself honestly, what's the difference? 
And perhaps this is just my thought. Perhaps it's it's the essence of the reason why. Perhaps Sarah Schneer wanted to do it because she she knew the essence of a woman is Torah, wanting to learn Torah, connect to the Torah. And she saw the women were losing this. So she started the school. On the other hand, perhaps maybe we live in a society where, you know, with women's rights and, and feminists and all that, which, you know, which comes and brings good stuff too. But perhaps the reason why the women want to be rabbis is more because they want to be like the men. And if you're wanting to be like a man, first of all, you're taking away from what it is to be a woman. And second of all, you're not coming with the real reason. You know what? We're not coming with, I really want to have a relationship with Hashem. You're coming with, I want to have this position. And that's what perhaps I think that's the reason of the black white women are not being rabbis. But honestly, I believe and I think that if their their real reason is because they want to be close to Hashem and they want to have this position and they want to delve deeper, you know, help, you know, help build B'nai Israel, help build the Jewish nation, then I believe over time the truth will prevail and over time this will become more accepted. But it has to be from a place of truth because truth always stands. You know, Sarah Schneer, when she started... They said no, but it was the truth. So she prevailed because she came from a place of truth. If these women are coming from a place of truth, I personally believe it will become accepted. If they're not coming from a place of truth, then I don't think it will ever happen because truth always prevails. And when you have a position where you're connecting to to God, to Hashem, and, and having such a special position, it's so important for it to come from a place of truth. That's a great point. I do sort of always, I don't know, wince when I here, well, we're just doing it because it's tradition. Because typically when you hear that from a rabbi, it means it's a tradition that originated at Mount Sinai. So then, you know, that's a tradition. That's directly from the Almighty. But, you know, you think about some things that were tradition, like men having multiple wives, that's a tradition that ended. Because it it doesn't say in the Torah, you must have multiple wives. Because mankind would have gone insane and the world would have fallen apart. So that is interesting. Is it something to do as well? Part of this tradition is that one of the things I really have appreciated about the way Torah Judaism approaches marriage is that there's some mitzvahs that the wife does and there's some that the men do. But really and truly, when you're married, you're doing both. Right. Like just as Lisheva is lighting the Shabbos candles. I'm davening. We're both doing those mitzvahs because it's sort of like a delineation of responsibilities. Right. And is there something to that the man is out teaching Torah to people outside of his family and the mother's teaching Torah to her children and sort of being a rabbi of the household? Is there an aspect of that is where this, maybe this tradition got built in? Right. So honestly, I don't see it like that because a woman, a woman being a rabbi is a different position than a woman teaching Torah. A woman can teach Torah in the house and out of the house. We have many men who work and they're accountants and lawyers and you find the wives going out and teaching Torah because that's what talks to them. So women can go out and teach Torah, but having the position as a rabbi and, and, and leading a synagogue is, is we are, is where women can stand. But women have taught Torah throughout history and con- continue to teach Torah. So I don't see it as, you know, separation. Okay. I see it more as misora, as a tradition, which is, to me, it's hard because, like you said, so many things have veered from misora, And that's why, that's why I think it's something deeper. It's misora, and that it has to come from an authentic place. Right. Okay. That, that makes sense. I mean, here you are, you're, you're teaching us Torah. Hmm. I mean, you are rabbi. That, isn't that what the word rabbi means, is teacher? 
Probably, yeah. And I feel like we live in a society where so much we're told we, as a woman, you have to be like a man with this feminist movement, which has right. done a lot of good for society. But it's so important to understand the differentiation where women come. We come with our gifts. I mean, women, a giver of life. I mean, I, I couldn't think of any better essence for a woman than that. And to embrace our role. Now, in the past, like, for example, putting on tefillin is a man's mitzvah. And a woman don't have to do the mitzvah. In general, women do not. But if a woman feels very, very connected to doing the mitzvah, she can. Okay. So the point is that when she, the reason why she would need to do it is not because, oh my gosh, I want to be like a man. She needs to do it because this is how I connect to God. So it's so important when a woman does something that is not typical, more like a man does, it's important for her to take a step back, look into herself honestly and saying, Am I doing this because I want to connect to God? Or am I doing this because I want to show that I'm just a good, as good as a man? But you are just as good as a man. We're just separate and equal, which is the wrong message. Right. Amazing. Okay. A, a great point. I didn't even realize that women were not being educated for so long. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine. But women all over the world weren't being educated because I guess we were just busy with doing laundry and just upkeeping a house. And it's all change all over the world. And I guess at the time of Sarashnera, it changed for the Jewish people too. Well, it's a, because the women are the, the spiritual center of the home. And if they not be grounded themselves in a deep understanding of Torah, it seemed like the fabric of the family would sort of break apart. Like if she didn't know, like, where's my husband this evening studying again or infusing that in the, the children, I, I'm like, I'm really a sort of shocked right. that, that that's a new thing that just started a couple hundred years ago. Yeah. I imagine, like, a, I think a woman a lot of times have this sixth sense, and imagine they have amuna pshuta, which, which is like simple amuna. They just connect to God and uh, just feel God and connect to God, which is a gift given to women. And perhaps it was given to women because, you know, we weren't always sitting and studying Torah. We didn't always have the luxury to be able to. Women by nature, we feel connected to, we feel more connected to God. It's interesting on college campus, we see when we do trips or Shabbatons or classes, we see the ratio between the girls and the boys are many times 70% girls, 30% boys. And we see that because I think innate as being the giver of life on a spiritual level, we're more connected to God. So whether that means, you know, sitting and studying Torah, which we have opportunities now too, or whether that means like, Back in the day, just feeling connected to God. Although there were many, many women who were who did sit and study, who did know more. We have Devorah. We have many, many women who have. But nevertheless, I imagine the norm, most women were not that educated. Okay. And that that's I think that's very true too, that women are more naturally connected and more naturally inclined to holiness. Like I'll give you an example when, I, when Rabbi Ari will be when he was teaching a class, the class got diverted into how observant Jews go about the dating process. And it was just, it was fascinating to me. And I came back and my daughter was probably nine at the time. And she asked how class went. I told her what Rabbi Ari told me. I was like, this is so amazing what they do. They approach it like, you know, like how I interview people for a job. It's like, now I talked her through what she, what he told us. And my daughter, age nine is like, well, yeah, that makes total sense. How did how did you do it? Right. I, I went to a bar and I got drunk and randomly met your mom one night. And she's like, uh, that's totally stupid. That doesn't make any sense. But like for her, it was like holiness, just like that makes total sense. But 
for a man, they have to be explained the rationale for why we want to be holy and be constantly infusing our mind with it for some reason. So, yeah, I think that what you said, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you have a smart daughter educating you at such a young (laughs) age. Yeah, yeah. So here's my next question. Well, let's jump to this one. And as Shauna became observant, especially moving here, a lot of the questions she gets from family members, and that is, why do women cover their hair? And the, the quick answer is always modesty. You know, we talk a lot about that, you know, the why we, why we do that. We don't identify as a body, we identify as a neshama. We want to identify the people as a neshama. But it is an awkward conversation when they say, well, why do you cover your hair with more hair in the form of a wig? Right. Let's discuss that. So... Great question. It's a question that many women have. It's, you know, we cover our hair and we cover it with a beautiful wig. That's what women do. So really the essence of covering our hair, the way I view it, my favorite answer that I found is that God created women beautiful. I mean, we see our Esther was beautiful. We see um, Sarah, Rebecca, they were all beautiful. All these women that were, you know, close to God were beautiful and Jewish women, we, we are a reflection of God. We have, we have a soul of God. We represent God. And Jewish women are beautiful. And Jewish women should be beautiful. So I like to make a differentiation between modesty and hair covering. The way I view it is that it's not modesty, but kind of as a reminder for a woman. It's, first of all, it's like a crown that a married woman wears. And number two, it's a reminder of to a woman to where her beauty belongs. Because... You know, we live in a society all over the world. Beauty is so important. Beauty is important for us Jewish women and for all over the world. Beauty is important. And when a woman gets married, she needs an extra reminder to where she should channel her beauty. So for herself, she covers her hair. Now, why everything? Why hair? Why specifically covering her hair? Because it's interesting. If you look at the way, you know, God created the body, there are beautiful parts, but all the parts, besides being beautiful, they also have a special task. For example, eyes. Eyes could be so beautiful, one of the really, really beautiful. Nevertheless, they see. So they're beautiful and they see. You know, a nose, beautiful, and you smell with it. A mouth, also, ears, all the, all the senses. But here, what is it there? It's there for beauty. God's saying beauty is important. Nevertheless, when we get married, a woman herself is being reminded, my beauty is for my husband. My beauty is for myself. My beauty is not out there to flaunt because beauty is a powerful thing. We know that. And so for the, for the woman, a reminder for her herself and nobody else, she reminds herself by covering her hair, whether with a wig or a headscarf, however she feels comfortable. But it's also important for a woman to, she, she should feel beautiful. And there is a misconception out there that when we're covering our hair, we should make ourselves look less beautiful. No, Jewish women are beautiful. We, ref- we are a reflection of our Shem. Our matriarchs were beautiful. We come from beauty. And there's nothing, and you know, we should feel good and continue to feel beauty. Nevertheless, it's a reminder for ourselves of who we are and where and how to channel that beauty. Okay, amazing. So it's basically the equivalent to a yarmulke. For a man, because when I finally learned like, oh, the purpose of it is to, from the moment I wake up, it's on my bedstand, put it on till I go to bed, is to remind me that I'm in the presence of, of God. It's not to cover a section of my hair. It's to put myself in that right state of mind. And that's basically what you're saying is the hair covering for the woman. 
I never thought of it that way, but yeah, kind of, yeah. Okay, that's amazing. Thank you for clarifying that. But let's keep that on that that train of thought, though, with SNES and the clothing and covering up and that that subject. Sure. So SNES is it's a hard subject, complicated subject to talk about, and I want to be honest here, many religious women struggle with it. So the way I like to view Tzniyas, what it is, is really Tzniyas means we show our real self, who we are, our essence. Our essence is always good. You know, we have a soul, God put in us a neshama, and when we reveal who we are, it's always good. So we have certain laws that we follow, whether with clothing or, you know, the way we act. It's all that our true self should shine. So if you think about it, it's an interesting story. Abraham was going to go to visit Avimelech with Sarah. And what happened was, it says he looked in the water and what happened? He saw Sarah's reflection and he saw Sarah was beautiful. Now, Abraham and Sarah were married for years. He didn't know she was beautiful. Like he had to wait to look in the water before visiting Avimelech to see that she was beautiful. Like what's going on here? So the rabbis talk about it and they say something mind boggling. It's he looked in the water and he viewed Sarah. How would Avimelech view her? How would how would that nation view her? Now he views her. How do I view her? I know she's a beautiful woman, but I know her essence, her her what's inside of her, her soul. She is such a beautiful woman. Inside of her, who she is as a person is so so beautiful, and that beauty is so overpowering that sometimes he didn't realize her outer beauty. It's like. When you know somebody so well and you know they're an amazing and good person and you know them for years and then somebody meets them and they say, wow, she's beautiful. And you have to think twice and say, yes, she is. But her inside is so, so beautiful. So that is what Abraham saw, her inside. And when he looked in the water, he was reminded, oh, she's so beautiful. You know what? Let me put her in a box because I want her. So he proceeded. He put her in, in a box when they went to visit Avimelech. So the concept here is that... Abraham saw how, you know, the world views beauty. He took a step back in how the world views beauty. And beauty is very enticing. And each of us, the laws of Sneas are here to help us take a step back. That our inner self should shine so brightly and not our outer shell. And women should look beautiful. They should, you know, Sneas is beautiful. But again, it's important to remember that our true selves are shining. It's interesting, the students on college campus who's, almost never seen a Tznias woman, she told me the one mitzvah I want to take upon myself is I want to be Tznias. And this always shocks me. I'm like, seriously? Because I grew up with it and sometimes I struggle with it and sometimes I don't appreciate it. But she's like, Tznias is so beautiful. You know, I've seen I've seen the other side. I've seen the world. I know what it's like. But when I see a Tznias woman, I see such beauty in it. And it's interesting. This happens many, many times, actually, shockingly, that one of the first mitzvahs that women are amazed and inspired by is how women dress modestly. And this always surprises me, but I've seen it on college campus. So Tznias is beautiful. It should be beautiful, but it's also a protection. Right. I mean, you know, we are pursuing spiritual growth and we recognize that, you know, we're in a Shama is experiencing life in this, this physical body. And so much of everything we do is focused on our inner growth in our inner world, and that's what defines us. And the the outside world has such a fixation 
on measuring people based off their physical attributes or their bank account. Right. <laughs> and I and I remember like before I got my home gym, I used to go we were in Kingwood to a lifetime fitness. And I was just starting to learn these concepts. And there the suburban gym in Kingwood, the dress code was pretty much the better shape you're in, the less clothing you need to wear, you know. And so the women would wear virtually nothing. The men would wear these tank tops that would, you know, they'd cut down to where I was seeing their belly button. Like, I don't want to look at your belly button, dude. To me, as I was learning this, I was like, that's really sad because all they see is a physical body and they're wanting the love and respect of others by showing off their body, by defining themselves as something that's really in a state of depreciation that's going to end up being maggot food. And I think that's one of the things that women are naturally drawn to because they know, like, I'm way more than just flesh and blood. hundred percent, hundred percent. And yeah, we, women do themselves the biggest favor when they're dressed sneerously, when they dress modest and they, they know who they are, when they know what sneers is, they know that sneers means they shine and they're showing their true self. And yeah, you could compare it to like a Sefer Torah. Sefer Torah is the words of God that God gave us, but we cover it. We cover it with a covering and then we put it, you know, we put it away in the ark. Why? Because it's so precious. It's so precious. And things that are beautiful and precious, we hide. We don't just flaunt them in the opening, in the open. So it's, it's hidden in a special place because it's so precious and so beautiful. And it's like, if I think about it, it's like if you have a ring, you give you give your wife a ring, so it comes in a beautiful case. Imagine she just takes it and just admires the case. Wow, it's black and it's velvet and feels so soft. And this is beautiful. I don't even want to open it. Right. That's that's when we just admire the body. But one minute, look inside, and inside is the most beautiful ring. And it's sparkling and it's shining and it's beautiful. You can't compare the inside to the outside. So that's what Sneas really is. We're trying to allow our insight to shine because our insight is so so beautiful awesome i think this is a good segue although i wasn't really planning on going here but i hinted at it already but let's do talk about the dating process sure because what you just said really sort of bifurcated and separated in on how dating works in the outside world and how dating works in the tour observant world so in the outside world what you do is i mentioned you go out and you look for the prettiest box, right? That's the analogy, like you just said. It's all it's what you're doing. And they look, see what they think is a pretty box, and you look for a pretty box, and then you spend time with the pretty box, and then uh, by the time you actually open the box, like, ew, I don't like that. <laughs> then you yeah. move on, repeat and rinse, you do that over and over again through heartaches and moving in with people and moving out. Fortunately, I didn't do any of that, but I know that's the norm now, or getting married and getting divorced and all these things. And then, you know, in our world, you know, what Rabbi Ari was explaining to him that day in class is it's a process of looking and finding out what's in the box. That's all it is. There's no touching. There's no anything to evoke emotion, which can cloud the intellect. You look at how we approach interviewing someone for a job. Like right now I've been expanding the company and I make my, I'm about to make a recommendation on two positions to the rest of leadership. Now, just imagine if I go to that meeting, uh, which is this week, and I say, guys, got the perfect person for the marketing director. And they say, tell me. You know, it's like, well, we went on the first interview. We went out and had some drinks together. 
Oh my God. He was so funny. We got, we got wasted. It was like such a good time. I was like, Oh, I, I love this guy. So we got, we went out for another interview and we went and saw a movie together and we watched the movie and afterwards he likes the same movie that I like and the same actors. It was amazing. I was just like, it felt so great, you know? And then the third interview, we went and had dinner together and we both liked the same food. So I don't know. I think we should all make an offer to him, right? They would say, Dan, you're, you're out of your mind. We want to know whether or not he has the qualifications and, the, and he's a good cultural fit to do the job and fit with us, right? But yet, that's how everyone in the outside world goes about hiring an employee. But when it comes to the biggest hiring decision you have to make, the one you're going to build a family with and spend your life with, it's all just based off like what I just described, right? Yeah. So talk a little about that, that process, what it looks like and... Right. So the dating process in the Jewish world is, it's not perfect, but it, the, the goal is to discover what's inside the box. So what there is, is usually there's a matchmaker or there actually are professional matchmakers. People do that as a business. And then there are friends and people who know different people. And what they do is they say, Hey, I know you, I know your essence. I know who you are. And I know this person and you know, I know who he is and perhaps you guys are a good match. So they ask about each other. And then they go out on a date, on a date, and they see if they like each other. And from there, it's it's built. So it's not kind of the natural way, meaning like going to bars and just connecting in that way. But it's more like trying to see what's in that box. And of course, it's always important to have that, you know, the connection and, and you know, to be attracted to either the man or the woman. The attraction needs to be there. It's like there's a, a law that you can't marry a man or woman they can't marry each other until they see each other. So there has to be that too. But nevertheless, we're trying to see what's in the box. That's the goal. So it's kind of, you know, it's like a job interview more. You know, you go, you meet, you you have a good time, but you ask questions also. You know, in the beginning, it's probably the first date. It's probably like superficial conversation. And as time goes on, it's like, hey, what type of family do you want to have? What type of home do you want to build? And you go in and ask these deep questions about children, family, you know, and also what do you want to enjoy, what do you enjoy doing? What do you do with your free time? All these questions. And you really, really get to know the person and you say, hey, is this person for me? So it's a logical decision. You know, you're making the biggest decision in your life. You know, who do you want to marry? And you ask these questions. You know, many times I hear that people, you know, they get married and they, they didn't ask certain questions basic, basic questions because they were just having such a good time together. So again, it's so important to have that connection, to have a good time together. But with that, delve deep. What are your goals in life? What are your values that you connect and you're on that same page or on a similar page? I'm so thankful Shonda did not know that. (laughs) (laughs) She would have netted me out in the running. So now she's just like, it it was in the prospectus. Sorry you didn't see it. It was in fine, fine print, but now you're stuck with me. That makes so much sense. And also when I was, was told, like, there's no touching because like Rabbi Yoko Fulby was saying, it's like, you know, you're, you're trying to make a decision and you don't want to let, that's not an area we want the emotions to spill over, make a decision. And Rabbi Busco taught me something interesting too, that there's this idea that when we meet our spouse, that there's this this immediate passion that Hashem provides, right? But it doesn't stay by itself. It's almost like here is what your marriage can look like. And then he takes it away and says, now go back and build that again, 
right? But when a lot of people don't look inside the box, they have that passion. They oh, I'm in love. And then they look inside the box and it's like, I have nothing in common with this person whatsoever. No same similar life goals, all that. So it makes, like my daughter said, that, that just makes total sense. Yeah. <laughs> Why do it any other way? And I look at the, you know, you look at the divorce rate in the, the outside world. And again, it's not perfect in the tour observant world, but you can definitely see with the framework, if you were to objectively look and say, okay, I want to find out best practices, like in business, who's doing what right? I would definitely say logically with empirical evidence that the way the Jewish community goes about it is the way to go. It's definitely best practices. I would think so too, yes. You know, back when I was dating, I mean, I think that was in the back of every woman's mind that I took out. What's he really after, right? And what they wanted was someone that will love me, you know? Not, is he just some creepy guy? I was probably a creepy guy back in my 20s. But they want that. And then I think the convincing comes on the men's side to understand that if you marry a woman for the wrong reason, because simply, you know, outer beauty, you're, you're going to end up being miserable more than likely. So it's, it's, it's maybe harder to convince young men, but I think once they intellectually get it, we're slower. It's like, I think we're not as intuitive on these matters. Once they get it, it's like, they understand that. I think that makes sense. Thank you for, for clarifying that. I, I appreciate it. Let's talk about this whole thing of separation. I really, because I, I don't have an answer to this too, like about men and women dancing. I'm not talking about like the type of dancing they do now where they're grinding up against each other and it's just crudeness. But I'm talking like my parents. Like it was wholesome type, you know, dancing that their generation would do, but in this community that'd be forbidden. Why, why is that? So I would think like a husband and wife, if they want to go dancing somewhere together, I would think that's, might not be the typical thing, but I would think that would be okay. It's just more, I think it goes back to the value of tznias that, you know, and you know, women are beautiful and we do these type of things more in private. But again, it's, I wouldn't say it's against halacha, that if, you know, a man and a woman, a husband and wife feel like they connect in this certain way and they really want to, you know, this is what talks to them. I would say that's okay. Okay. We're not going to put up an event like that because, you know, a husband and wife's relationship is the most special thing. And again, it's, it's private. It's done in private, you know, because just like a safer Torah is covered, you know, all these type of things are most special part of the relationship, you know, our special part. It's, it's private. It's special. And we don't go out and flaunt it. So that's why I would think, you know, the reason that men and women don't dance together. But if, again, if there's an exception out there, it's not wrong. It's, you know, if that's what talks to a specific couple, you know, let them go ahead and do it. And then this whole idea of separation, like men not shaking women's hands. Talk a little bit about why we limit. Let's talk about that, the, the touching and also just being separated. Right. So the concept is the concept of touch. Touch is so, so powerful. And the way to see it is like if you haven't been touched for like a week or two and somebody touches you, if you're just like conscious of it, it just feels so good. Touch is a very, it's a very, very powerful form of love. And sometimes, you know, we have to take a back, take a step back and like see it and understand it. But just think about feeling hugged. How good does that feel? How good does it feel when somebody pats you? I mean, these 
these are really gifts. These are gifts like from God, how God created the power of touch to be so, so powerful. And because the power of touch is so powerful, there has to be some sort of like a safeguard, like a fence around it to make sure that we're touching the people that we want to have relationships with. So for example, we touch, you know, we could touch our husband, we could touch, you know, our children, a female could touch any other female, her father, anyone that she can have a close relationship with. People that needs to be maybe more business oriented or more just like friendly, there's no touch because touch changes the relationship. It makes it that much more close. And we don't want to have, a female doesn't want to have such a close relationship with a male that's not her spouse. That wouldn't be a healthy relationship. So because touch is so powerful, and sometimes we forget how powerful it is, but the truth is it is. And if we touch the people only that we want to have that close relationship with, that increases our relationship and makes us closer to each other. So it's really important to take a step back and realize that touch is so powerful and it really connects us in such a powerful, powerful, powerful way, such a deep way. Yeah, that makes sense too. When people say like, what's the big deal? Now you're making me think like, well, when someone hugs their wife, it, it should be a big deal. Right. Like we've become so desensitized to so many things. Like it should be, especially like I remember reading many years ago, uh, Rabbi Online answering a question on why men don't sit with their wives in Shul and Davin. And the rabbi was explaining, was like, I'm trying to connect to my creator. If my wife's sitting next to me, I would be thinking about her. And the other party responded like, you really, you can't control yourself that when your wife's sitting next to you. And he's like, no, it's so sad for you that your passion should be so much with your wife that you couldn't focus on the Almighty with her sitting next to you. And I think it is this whole idea of of making certain things special, not desensitizing ourselves to them by separating them and reserving them only for the, the certain people. 100%. 100%. I want to get into also like the concept of handshaking, like you said. So some people actually handshake. I actually do. I'll shake a hand with a, if a man. If a man, male puts his hand out, I'll shake his hand. And so does my husband, Maishi. He does the same. So to me, I view it as just a gesture, just like saying hello. And the tradition and culture in America is that's what we do. And that's what we do. Finish. So I just shake. But some people don't. And a religious Jew won't do it to another religious Jew. But if you're doing it just to say hello and the other person puts their hand out, many people say it's okay to do. And that's, that's how we go about it. And one part of it I love about the Torah is like the Torah is v'chai bahem. We should live with it. And this is an example where it's like, you know, the culture is, the tradition is, this is what we do. We put our hands out and the Torah is v'chai bahem. It should be beautiful and we live with it. So, you know, if someone puts our hand out, we put our hand out too. Some people don't, but, you know, many people do. Okay. Amazing. And I think the, the last thing I wanted to cover with you is the whole idea that, you know, we don't put ourselves in situations where men and women are in a secluded with someone of the opposite sex. I think this, you would think this would be self-explanatory after all the Me Too stuff that came out, but go ahead and and talk. I think it's self-explanatory now, but do talk about that. Right. So like we say, a woman's body, God created a woman's body very, very powerful. And it's a special gift given to a woman. And it needs to be used in the proper way. And because of that, it's like a safeguard. You know, so many times we hear so many stories that this guy did this to me and this guy did this to me. And 
And it's so important to, because it's such a painful experience to have to be touched and we don't want to be touched because touch is so powerful. So we want to prevent all that. So to prevent that, we have certain laws about, you know, when a man and woman are together, what to do to protect the woman really, that she shouldn't get hurt. She shouldn't get harmed because women are special, you know, and, and we want to make sure to, you know, to, to protect our woman. Women are special and, and they're important and they need to be protected. And that is a special safeguard that it's interesting that the Jewish world has always had it since back in the day. And, and now the non-Jewish world is coming with the Me Too movement and all these stories that have happened. And they're like, wow, this happens. But, you know, the Torah says, yes, it can happen. And we need to put safeguards out there to, you know, so therefore we have certain laws about men and women being secluded in the same room and, you know, having the door open or another woman or a man there to protect the woman. Robinson, that was so amazing, so insightful. When I asked the Torch rabbis who would be the perfect person to come and talk about these topics, they said unanimously it was you. And I'm so grateful because you really did answer a lot of questions for me, clear up things in such a great way for the listener. So on behalf of the audience, thank you for coming on the Shmuel Podcast. Thank you so, so much for having me. It's been like an honor and it's a topic that I'm so passionate about it. So it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.